Welcome to the Brilliant Business Moms Podcast, episode 136, with Sarah Kornack and Beth Ann Schwamberger. Today on the show, we're talking with Molly Goodall of the Etsy shop and online store, Little Goodall. Molly makes the most unique and adorable coats for children I have ever seen. I love Molly's story because her originality and talent is what really made her business take off. I know you'll love hearing her story as well. So let's get started. You're listening to the Brilliant Business Moms podcast, practical business advice for startup moms. Today on the podcast, we are pleased to welcome Molly Goodall of the online store and Etsy shop, Little Goodall. Molly makes the most adorable animal coats for children that you have to see for yourself. We are not kidding. They are the cutest things you've ever seen. And Molly lives in Texas with her husband and son. Welcome to the show, Molly. Thank you. Molly, could you begin by telling us a little bit more about yourself, your family, and your business, Little Goodall? Sure. So we live in McKinney, Texas, which is north of Dallas by about 30, 30 minutes, sometimes less depending on traffic. And I have a seven-year-old son, Carter, and my husband, Wayne. My husband is from London. We met at an airport <laughs> and then we're married about two years later. And so he was naturalized last year. So it, it's kind of, we have different perspectives on, on things coming into parenting, but they all mesh. And we have two bunnies and a very old cat and a bunch of koi, and we live in Texas. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. So, Molly, can you tell us how you got started with your business, Little Goodall? Sure. Okay. I, I, I studied fashion design in, in college. That was always what I wanted to do. I went to Parsons School of Design in uh, in New York, which is wow. where it's when I went there, it was not the project runway hadn't happened. And so nobody knew where I went. Everybody just thought I disappeared. But by the time I was a senior, I knew I wanted to focus on children's wear. But when I graduated, I ended up working for a toy company for a few years and then life just sort of happens. And and I, I had stopped, stopped working in design at all. I was I was actually working as a fine artist when I met my husband. We moved to Texas. I was in New York and he was in London. Then we moved here. And a few years later, we had our son. And before I had my son, I was mostly spending a lot of time doing watercolors, which I would spend a lot of time on, like eight hours at a go. And after I had my son, I couldn't sit and do that. I couldn't focus on one thing for that long because you're up and down and you're up and down. You're doing everything you have to. So I kind of wanted a new creative outlet. And and so I started thinking back towards design and children's wear and what I loved. And I started sort of making some little things for him. Then when he was about, I think he was about 18 months old, he started getting a lot of ear infections. And every time we'd go back to the doctor, the doctor would say, well, you really need to keep his ears covered. Wherever you go, you know, when he's outside playing, you need to keep his ears covered. And my son is a big outdoor kid. He likes to be outdoors all the time. And he also did not want to have anything on his head ever. And whatever hat I would put on him, he would pull off immediately. Whenever I'd put up the hood on his coat, even if I'd like do the little Velcro at the bottom, he would take it right off. So I was in a fabric store one day and I saw this, this like sort of gold, yellow, gold colored felt. And I it just thought, oh, what if I made him a coat that looked like 
an animal because maybe then he'd think of it like a costume and it wouldn't be something that he would take off. He would keep it on because it was fun to wear. So I sat down at the dining room table when he went down for a nap and I started kind of messing around with it. And about two days later, I ended up with this little felt lion coat and I tried it on and he loved it. He thought it was the coolest thing. It was like he would put it on and he was a roaring lion. He was not harder anymore. And lo and behold, when we went outside, he kept the hood on because you couldn't be a lion if you didn't have your hood on. You didn't have your lion head on. So it was like a costume, but also a coat. So that's that's how I designed the first piece. I met a friend who had a shop on Etsy, and I hadn't even heard of Etsy before. And she had a cloth diaper shop on Etsy, and she said, you should sell these on Etsy. And so I didn't really think that it would go anywhere, but I just was able to photograph my son in the coat. I photographed the coat on my kitchen table. I posted it in Etsy. This was in September of 2010. And and I posted it at a crazy price that I thought no one would pay. But I, I felt like I had to do that because of the time and energy that went into making them. And it was like one hundred and twenty dollars for this one. And the next morning it sold. And so it was crazy. It was just stupid luck, I think. And and we've just grown and grown from there. So at this point, we no longer do the sewing in our studio anymore. I have a fantastic team in Dallas that sews things far more beautifully than I ever could. And we do the design work here and we do all the sales from the studio as well. Molly, that sounds like such an amazing story. And I don't think it was luck at all. It was that you designed a fabulous item that that people (laughs) knew that they wanted to own. But I'm curious about some more of those early days. So you posted the the one lion coat on Etsy for what you thought was a ridiculous price and it sold right away. Mm-hmm. So then what were your next steps? Were you just posting more more lion coats or did you immediately begin to design other animal coats to sell in your Etsy shop? I did. I had an idea for a fox, too. And so I started, I would repost every time I'd sell, you know, I'd post it as one item. And when I drafted the original pattern for it, I drafted it in my son's size, which was a 2T. So if somebody ordered a 4T, it meant I had to hand draft the whole pattern over again. (laughs) So it was very time consuming. So I was making and drafting all those patterns. Of course, by the time I had received orders in sizes 12 months through six, I had those patterns already drafted. But at the same time, I was trying to develop more styles. And that's when I did the fox and the dinosaur. And another thing that I was really interested in at the time was that there's not a lot out there for little boys. Like there, there's a ton out there for little girls, beautiful dresses and unique things. But for little boys, everything I would find in the stores was either like logos or cartoon characters or words. And I wanted something that was more creative and and less grown up. And I I really think that with little boys, too, they're, you know, they're they're, they're given a, a smaller window of childhood in some cases because it's OK to see an older girl dressed like a princess or who's being more creative with their clothing. But little boys, once they hit a certain age, they're wearing like the same thing their dads wear. So I was focusing on things that were that were friendly for little boys so they could have that chance to be be wild and be creative when they were little. And it happened because of that, that they were also sort of unisex. 
So the lion and the fox, we sell to boys, you know, equal, equal quantities, boys and girls. The dinosaur was more little boys, although we do have girls buy that. But, but yeah, it was just trying to develop new styles while I was making and shipping the existing styles in the beginning. So Molly, it sounds like you almost just kind of spread by, is it, was it word of mouth a bit and just the fact that your products were so unique that you were getting found on Etsy? And like, did you kind of have trouble keeping up with demand even right from the very beginning? Yes, I had. It was huge. I'm still having trouble keeping up with demand. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's a great problem to have. Yeah. In, in the beginning, it was a nightmare, but it was also the most exciting thing ever. Because I was like, I was a stay-at-home mom, and my world was my child. And all of a sudden, I would like, I could go online, and I'd get these great questions and comments and conversations with people who were convoying me on Etsy about things. And and that was wonderful. But trying to keep up, that first Christmas, I got to the point where I real I was going to start getting in trouble because I couldn't make them fast enough or I couldn't get the materials fast enough. My husband started, he would come home. He's a, he's a builder, a custom builder, but he would come home at night and cut coats for me on the kitchen table while I was sewing on the dining room table. And, and the thing that, that was difficult then, although it was great to have that much business and, and I, I liked that, but I didn't get time to do the design work, which was what I really was passionate about. That's what's fun for me coming up with something new. So, if you look back at my history, it's like like the first few years, it was the, the, the lion and the fox. And then we did the wolf, which is a d- different coloration of the fox, then the dinosaur. And then it was a really long time before I came out with the owl, just because I couldn't do it all. And when I realized I couldn't do it all, that was when I realized that I had to get help. And I had no idea how to do it. But if I didn't start taking some steps, I was going to be tied to my sewing machine. And that's not what I wanted. Right. Absolutely. So. So you were getting crazy busy with orders and you knew you needed help. So what help did you try and find first and how did you go about finding that help so that you could grow your business? The first thing I did was just an Internet search, trying to find pattern making and pattern grading services in my area. And what's interesting about that is that there are a lot of people work remotely with pattern makers or pattern graders. You don't have to be like near them. Luckily, there is a great one in Dallas that I work with. And what pattern grading is, it's when it's when you have your basic pattern that you make in one size and you give it to the pattern grader and they will grade it into all the other sizes for you. So that you don't have to make each one like redrafting like I was doing. Because I was doing it the old school way, like with a ruler and a piece of paper. (laughs) And that's not how things are done anymore. So that was my first foray to find somebody who could help with the pattern making and pattern grading. And I met a pattern maker who I would be able to actually gave him my original patterns. And he he was making them into real like more professional patterns. And then and then the grader there was able to take those and grade them into sizes. So that was the first thing. And that was just like I just looked at all the different the different portions of what I do and thought about which pieces could I break out and get help on instead of looking at the whole thing. And so at that point, I was still thinking that I was going to make these myself, but I was just going to have some help with the patterns. The second thing that I did was we have on all the little facial features in the coats. They're like little felt pieces that are applique on. And I was hand cutting them. 
And to cut them, it's, you know, it, it takes a long time and, and it's a bunch of pieces. So I thought if I could find somebody who could make metal dies, like metal cookie cutters, then I could use a die press machine to click those shapes out. And that way I could just have a big bag of fox eyes that I could sew on. And so I was able to find another one of those also in Texas, like another small business, a husband and wife team. And I would send them little cardboard shapes for my eyes and noses. And then they would make them into metal dies, like little metal cookie cutters and ship them back to me. And I will say that what prompted all of all of this, besides the fact that I was going crazy with trying to sew all the time, was Guilt Group had contacted me and they wanted to do an, an order for Halloween. And I really wanted to take advantage of that because guilt has a huge following, but there was no way when they contacted me, it was in like, I think February of, of whatever year it was, maybe 2012. And they, and, and I realized when I planned out my time that if I made their order, I would have to shut down the Etsy store and do nothing but sew because they wanted 400 pieces, a hundred of four, hundred each of four styles. Oh, oh my. And so that was when I really, it was like I either had to, it was sink or swim. I had to find some help or I wasn't going to be able to do, have that opportunity. And I wasn't going to be able to have my Etsy shop anymore, which was the people that I really liked to talk to. So those were the first things that the little, the dyes, the, the pattern making. I found a pattern cutter who would work with me. And that was also great because most of the coats have about 60 different pattern pieces in them. They're pretty complicated. And so having someone cut them that wasn't my husband <laughs> was was a lot easier on our marriage and, and also cheaper for me in the long run because my time is pretty expensive. If if I can be designing a new style that we can sell, it's worth more for me to do that than spend time cutting. And then from there on, I was found my first sewing room and was able to meet them, work with them. It was really important to me to be able to go there, meet them, see who was sewing my pieces what what their work conditions were like and I've been I've worked with about four different sewing rooms since then the one I'm working with now is really fantastic I love them they've all been good but you kind of you you go from different grades of sewing skill and the people I do now they do like private label for Neiman Marcus and so it, their sewing skills are unbelievable so I feel like I've really found my sort of partners there that's really interesting, Molly. I love hearing about all the ways that you've outsourced in your business. And I think it's great that you're, you know, using a local sewing shop or I'm not sure if that's the right word or not, but yeah, sewing room. That's what it is. Sewing room. Okay. Yeah. And so you're able to, like you said, you can see, you can meet those people. You can see their working conditions. And how cool is that, that now your sewing room is the same one that does some things for Neiman Marcus. So, yeah, well, I was, I was a little bit lucky because Dallas used to be a big manufacturing area. And so there are pockets left of people who, the people who have stuck around are the people who are really good at it. And so that's who is here. I did originally, when I was first trying to outsource, I went to New York and I spent about a week up there meeting different manufacturers that are up there. I really wanted to keep things in the United States. And in, then when I found the ones in Dallas, for me, it was 
really nice that I could be supporting my local community and my local economy. And then also that I could be able to go down there and problem solve. Because when I'd worked in the toy industry, we were manufacturing overseas and you'd have to do everything by email and it would take weeks for samples to go back and forth. And so having them close by is really, is really fantastic. Yeah. And I just want to say for, you know, any talented handmade artists out there that I think sometimes there's a lot of hesitation around outsourcing some of that work, but I just look at your business, Molly, and I see all the new products you now have, all of the ways you've been able to take your design skills and make amazing new things. And like you said, that wouldn't happen if you were stuck sewing day in and day out. So just Yeah, just a little encouragement for some talented listeners out there who are maybe contemplating this stuff. Well, I know when there was sort of, when Etsy first came out and said you could use outside manufacturers, there was a lot of like negative and positive. I was on the positive side because I know that if there's somebody who's done something like all day for 20 years, they're probably going to be better at it than me who does something maybe once a week for 10 years. And so each aspect, my pattern maker makes my garments better because she makes my sizing consistent because all she does is make patterns. And my cutter, he cuts far better than I could ever cut. It's his art. And everybody that I use is an expert in their field. So what I've always told people is that my DNA is all over every garment I ship because I've been there every step of the way. I've taken the fabric to the cutter, discussed how he's going to cut it, taken the pattern to him, then I've picked it up, then taken it to the sewing room. I've been part of every part of that down to packing and putting the label on it, but I don't have to sew everything for it to be, you know, I don't have to do every step of it for it to really be like a handmade product. It is handmade when it is made by my team, and I am a far better, the the product is far better when my team makes it as opposed to me as one person who's doing everything. And I think that's that's how a lot of people are beginning to see it. Now, that's how Etsy saw it. But it was difficult for people to kind of understand that I had two ways to go. I could either because I can only make so many coats in a week. If I sew one, it takes me about 12 hours. So I could either raise my prices so high to compensate for my 12 hours of sewing that no one could afford them. Or I could find other people to help me sew them and we produce a better product for a lower price. So that's, I think, the way to go. I think you have explained that beautifully, Molly. That's that's the crux of the issue for a handmade seller. Either you raise your prices or you get outside help. That's what it comes down to if you want to continue to grow. And you have just outlined that magnificently. Speaking of patterns, I know that your patterns are now carried, or at least some of them, are carried by Simplicity, which is a huge pattern-making company. I am really curious to know how that part of your business has come about. Simplicity came to me. I did not have, I can't take any credit for that. They emailed me one year and said they were really interested in selling the patterns. I know that patterns are a really big, it's a great way for people to expand on Etsy and, and in other ways. And also, I'd noticed this strange trend on Pinterest because people would pin the coats onto their like DIY boards <laughs> and I couldn't figure it out. And my, the people I work with couldn't figure it out because 
they're one of the, they're like the most complicated things the sewing room sews. But what we think is that it's the fact that they're made of wool felt and people see felt as being a, a kind of user friendly or easy, easy product to work with. And so I think that's what simplicity grasped on. And the, the fox coat was really part of the zeitgeist a few years ago. I remember somebody sent me something from an Italian. It was like an Italian trend forecasting company, and they, they had forecasted the 10 hottest trends for the next year, and my fox coat was one of them. <laughs> and I, it was just so bizarre, like this thing that I, I like photographed on my kitchen table, and this was one of the hottest new international trends. But so they contacted me, Simplicity contacted me and offered me the licensing, and I thought, well, why not? I mean... I would love to be able to sell my patterns like as PDFs, but I don't know how to do that. It's out of my wheelhouse. And by the time I put all the research and time and energy into finding out how to do that, I I don't have that kind of time and energy. Now, if anyone, you know, knows how to do that, tell them to contact me. But so, so yeah, it was, it was one of the easiest things I did. I sent them, I sent them a couple coats. I sent them the pattern and then I sent them images. We did a photo shoot for it. And then I just got licensing fees. It was great. That's really interesting, Molly. And so I'm just a little curious about how a licensing deal works. And I'm sure there's fine print for every deal. Did you get like a certain price up front and then you get royalties or how? I mean, I'm not asking for exact numbers here, but I'm just curious as to how that arrangement kind of plays out. Yes, they gave me an advance. And then I got royalties after that. And since then, Simplicity has been sold to Wilton and Wilton has discontinued us. So I don't know what was going on there. I'm still trying to get more information because I sell the patterns too. And I mean, I sell the Simplicity patterns that you can go out and buy at Joann's on our website because people were asking me for them and they still sell well for us. So I kind of feel like you know, there's that something was going on with their switchover. And I also noticed we had the same issue with the patterns where another designer actually copied our pattern with, <laughs> with another pattern company. And we had to go, you know, try to deal with that with the lawyer. But I really thought it was great that Simplicity came to me and said, let's license this from you instead of we're just going to do a knockoff. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. With their talented you know, workforce that they probably have, they, I'm sure they could have come up with something very similar on their own. So you're absolutely right. Good for them that they were willing to pay you and give you the credit that you deserve. Yeah. That's that's great. I know you've also had a, a book deal that came your way as well. And you shared with us in an email, a creative way that you managed to get your book written. Could you tell us about how that book deal came about and then explain how you managed to find time to write that book? Sure. So the book started, that was another thing where they reached out to me through email. And it was a company that was in the UK, Quantum Publishing, and they come up with ideas of books and then they sell them. So they have to sell the book before it gets written. But they had tapped me to write it. And I said, great, you know, this would be fun. So we did a mock-up for the book, and then they took it around the world to different different publishing markets, and it sold. It did really well. And so then I had this contract to write a book, and I had to make up the projects, 
and make the patterns and sew the projects and do all the illustrations and and write all the text for it. And I had about nine months to get it done. And it was a really great opportunity. I really wanted to do it. But it was also at the beginning of the summer. And I had my son was five at the time. And he was going to be home with me and sort of out of school for the summer. And I didn't know what to do with him. I could not afford like full-time childcare or even part-time childcare. But I really wanted to do it. So what I did was I shifted my, my day. So I would, I'd go to bed when my son went to bed, which was at eight. Some days I would go to bed even earlier. <laughs> and, and this was a hardship for my husband because usually after my son went to bed, then we and I would, that was when we would connect and watch something on TV or talk or whatever. So I was not connecting with my husband so well, but then I would get up at either four or five in the morning and then I could work for a few hours so that when my son got up at seven, then I could have like my normal day with him and we could go on about our normal activities. So it was weird shifting the schedule, but it worked really well because instead of it being like eight o'clock at night and he goes to bed and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, now I've got to start sitting down and working on this book. I was able to get that out of the way first. So I was feeling good. I was ready to move forward and we could enjoy our summer together because you're only going to have one summer with your five-year-old. So so it worked really well. And I still use that. I still use that when I have a big project that I have to get through. I will shift my schedule so I go to bed a lot earlier. And usually I just, you know, I get like a, a heating pad and some nice tea and I just schedule my day so that I can go to bed earlier that first night. And then after that, it's easy to wake up early in the morning. And it works great. I think that's a great solution, Molly. And I really love what you said about you know, you only have one summer with your five-year-old. I mean, that's exactly right. That's part of, you know, being a mom is like, you know, you don't want to miss those moments. So I love, I love your solution there. So I'd love to talk a little bit about how you expanded into wholesale and maybe some of the challenges of, you know, initially starting out retail and then expanding into that market. Sure. We started wholesale basically because I started getting inquiries from a lot of a lot of shops in Europe and Asia and I hadn't thought about doing it because retail works great for me we still do more retail than we do wholesale and I think that's the same for a lot of internet based people that you do you know you can do retail equally as well but we're still finding our like finding our stride with wholesale we started with the international customers who would place orders they would just email us off our basic line. I went through a, about a year of adjusting prices to get it to where we were going, where we were getting our margins correct on wholesale because it's hard when you have a product that you're, you're making and you're buying all the materials and you're doing everything. When you price it for to sell on retail, you're thinking, you know, you're not adding enough to it. So I know you guys do a lot of stuff on, on pricing and how to correct, do correct pricing. So I won't go too much into that, but it was a, it was a, a, a sort of conscious decision we had to make to go through and change everything, make sure it was right, really dial down on everything, like what each button I cost. And what the, what the hang tags cost, all that sort of thing. But once we did that, then since then it's just been trying to find the right, right channels. So first we worked with two different brand reps in the United States who operated in different markets. And one of them had like two states and the other one had 13 states. 
And from them, we had to worry about adjusting prices again because then they were getting a commission off of it. But we thought, you know, this is a good way to go because they're going to take our products to all these shows. The Midwest was really difficult. Since then, I've realized that she just wasn't going to the right shows because now we have a lot of really good clients out there. But at the time, she was having a hard time selling us because the other products she was selling were made in China and a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. So if you're selling to a children's store who's used to paying like 10 to $20 for a coat and you've got a coat that's like four or five times that for wholesale, they're going to think it's crazy, despite the fact that, you know, it costs a lot more to make yours. We also have a distributor that's in the Netherlands and another one that's in Japan. And right now they're kind of functioning more as not so much as like what a true distributor does. So we're, we're still trying to find out the best way to, to work with them. And since then, we started doing trade shows, which has probably been the most useful, most useful way to expand into wholesale for us because we see a lot more people and we're able to form relationships directly with them. And that's what, that's what I would recommend for anyone who has a product who's thinking about going into wholesale. The first one that we did was that was New York Now and Etsy had expanded into their wholesale, Etsy Wholesale, and they had invited 10 different shops to go with them and be the first Etsy Wholesale display at New York Now. Oh, New York Now is a gift show. And I should, I'm going to try to go be more specific here for people who don't know trade shows yet. So the gift show is, is twice a year and all the wholesale stores from the United States or from around the world, all the, sorry, all the retail stores will go to these gift shows and then place all of their orders so that they are going to get things in time for spring or for fall, whenever they need it. And this allows you as a, as a brand or as a salesperson to Go to one place where all these people have the opportunity to meet you, see your product and place your order. And then you can leave there and manufacture what you need to meet all their orders, which is really fantastic. So New York Now was our first show. It was great because Etsy paid for it <laughs> and they built the booths. They did everything. I just had to you know, pick my product and send them pictures and they really custom built it for us. And they did a lot of press and that was really lucky to, to be able to be a part of that. They're still doing it and they are doing, they do different vendors each season. So it's something to look into if you're interested in Etsy wholesale and you have a product that might fit there. They also do a stationary show, but my product didn't fit in with that. So at, at our first show we, at New York Now, we got a lot of orders, met a lot of stores, also had a lot of people who loved the product and said, we don't do children's clothing or we don't do things that come in sizes, but I love your product. And so that was sort of a signal that this was something that would be that that we needed to look into other shows that might sell our product better. So then the next show that we did was the American Made show. And American Made is a show that's specifically for vendors who make products in the United States and Canada. And it's all different price ranges. There are people who make headbands and there are people who make like $10,000 sculptures. It's really an interesting mix. But what I really like about that show and what I would recommend to people who are trying to do a show for the first time is that they are great at bringing new people into into that 
sort of universe. And they'll, they actually have seminars there where they teach you how to plan out your calendar to make sure you're not accepting more orders than what you can manufacture. Or they have little seminars on web marketing and all these different things. So it's kind of like a 101 on how to sell wholesale. And it's also really affordable. I think, I think you can get a booth there. It's a small booth in their like new and notable aisle, which is their, or new, new to the show aisle. It's like $500. And to be able to walk away from a show like that with like $10,000 worth of orders, it's really, really useful. The other thing about shows is you're developing a relationship with a store that you're going to have for many more years. So even if you don't walk away with huge orders that show, you have to think about every new account you pick up can write orders for you every season after that. And that's constant new business. And then you meet a lot of really great people from other larger stores or larger companies. So we did some products with Uncommon Goods, and I met them at New York Now, and then I met them again at American Made. So they come and kind of check you out in different places. We had a product in the Smithsonian catalog at Christmas. I met them at the show. There are a bunch of museum shops that carry our hats that picked us up at the shows. And I could never have found those people if it wasn't for going. So we're still trying out different ones. We didn't do American Made this year. This is the first year we're going to do Playtime New York. And the Playtime shows are very highly curated children's wear shows that are in New York, Paris, and Tokyo. And I think that's going to be really good for us because everyone there is used to carrying products that they are carrying in sizes. And they're used to sort of unique children's clothing. It's not cheaper children's clothing like T-shirts. Wow, wow Molly. It's, it's- Sounds like this wholesale could really just explode for you with, like you said, it's relationships that will pay off for years. And I know you've said that retail is still doing better for you than wholesale, but with all of your contacts, it seems like wholesale is going to be an awesome opportunity for you in the future. I, I am curious, as you've had to raise your prices to adjust to being able to sell wholesale, so raise your retail prices, have you seen like a diminishing quantity of sales from raising the price of your products retail? No, we haven't at all. And in some things, there's one particular style that we were selling at one price and we just thought it wasn't doing a lot and we raised the price, which we needed to do because we were losing money for what we were selling it for. And when we raised the price, it really took off. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's perceived value on a lot of things. And I also think that it's sort of knowing your brand. We don't do a lot of, we don't do sales. We might do a sample sale occasionally, but we don't do sales. It doesn't help us to price something at like $39.99 because our customers are not necessarily looking for something that's uh, that's cheap or a, a real bargain. They're looking for something that's really special and unique. And if you're buying something and you're giving it as a shower gift or you're giving something to, you know, your your niece that you want her to have something exquisite, people want that sort of luxury feel to it as opposed to a less expensive. So, no, we never saw any pushback with the prices. And I even at the time when we did it, I thought if someone emails me and says, I saw you had this at this price and then now it's five dollars more, I would always give it to them at the earlier price. But we just never had that. That is good to know. And I agree 
Molly, that, you know, when I look at your coats and your items, it's an investment. It's deciding that they are just so special and unique that someone has to have them and they'll throw aside all their clothing budget and put it <laughs> towards a beautiful <laughs> coat. They do last. We have families who hand them down. They've got like they've got like four kids and the youngest one is wearing them now. So they're good value that way. Good cost per wear. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure. And for I'm sure for many of your customers, not their whole clothing budget. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a drop in the bucket of their clothing yeah. budget. So. <laughs> Molly, I also know that you've had a ton of press. I think probably because your items are just so unique and special. Once you've had press, like in a significant, this is something I've always kind of been curious about, I guess. So if you get press in a significant magazine or publication, so print, how have you seen that translate into sales? Like, do you get that big burst of sales after that print publication press of your products? Sometimes, but not often. And I've kind of learned a lot over trying different things, <laughs> trial and error. If it's something like like we had a piece in the Wall Street Journal two years ago that was about the children's or trend of costumes towards clothing. I, I mean, I saw no zero jump in that because that's not going to interest people. You know, the people who are reading the Wall Street Journal aren't necessarily the people who are going to pay $170 for a kid's coat. Then we had a piece last year in the New York Times that was a really nice feature. No sales jump from that. Sometimes you see a jump, a big jump in like Instagram or Facebook likes. And with Instagram, it's really clear, but those don't always translate to sales. And one thing I thought was interesting was we have someone who sells our coats in another country, and I won't be too specific about it in case she's listening or listens at some point. But she, when she started carrying our products, she was really trying to build up her Facebook following. And she started doing giveaways. And she has huge Facebook following. I think she's got like over 100,000 people who follow or like her, her page, which is a lot for, I mean, it's a lot more than what we've got. But her sales are nowhere where they should be. And I think it's because she was advertising to people who wanted something for free, not necessarily somebody who was going to become a customer. So her target audience was not right. Sometimes there are people who we will work with moms on Instagram or moms on Facebook. And after we do something with them, then we see a lot more followers and then we'll see a boost in sales. But for me, it's very difficult to tell when you're going to see it. I mean, when Blake Lively featured us in an article or she talked about us in People Magazine a year ago. And you'd think, wow, think about how many people read People Magazine. And there was like a photo of one of our coats in there and it was great. We didn't see a sales boost from that. Wow. wow. But sometimes you'll see you'll have a blogger who will mention you and you'll see a big sales boost in that. And it's really very specific to the audience that they are that that person is reaching. That makes a lot of sense, Molly. You know, it's again, it's the product market fit that's got to be spot on. And I think, too, more and more with print advertising, there's just that disconnect because someone can't click right on the magazine and go purchase versus if they see you on a website online, and particularly if it's a website for moms with money to spend. 
Yeah, yeah, kids' fashion, if that's an interest. When we've worked with, we've worked with some bloggers and, you know, you send them, you send them whatever they request. Or I guess when we started, people would request things for giveaways. And in, with those, it was difficult because you'd have to say, do you want it in a specific size? Because we don't have, I don't have a range of lion coats through in all those sizes available all the time. But that's what the bloggers ask for. And then when you, then when it comes out in the blog and you, in their giveaway and you see that there are other people who've given like a $12 item. Oh, and it's, it's like not quite even value, you know? Yeah. And so, so, you know, we tried those and, and they, they were again focused on people who wanted a free item. So we did not see boost, sales boost in those because they, they were, following that blogger because they wanted to win something free. That was the thing. It wasn't they were interested interested in something. But then if you send something to a blogger who does beautiful photos, she's maybe like a lifestyle blogger or she does beautiful photos and she's she's photographing it on her children or, or isn't this a unique piece, then you see the boost on that. Yeah, it's just all about really finding. And so now we won't do like product reviews because – it's, you know, we, it's not really a product that you can review. Like it's just, it works better if we really kind of watch people and, and follow the ones who have a lifestyle blog or, or a, a, something that's more our market. And it's not always huge. They might not have 79 K followers, but if they have 2 K followers who are all really into this specific thing, that's when it's a really smart relationship for us. All really good stuff for us to keep in mind, for anybody to keep in mind that sometimes everyone's so drawn to the numbers, you know, People Magazine, 100,000 followers, but you have just walked us through why that can often just not even matter and that the fit is so important. So that is, that's really a good reminder for all of us. Well, Molly, as we wrap up, we have learned so, 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 so much from you today, and we absolutely love your products. Could you tell us all a funny or adorable mom moment that you have had recently with your son? Over Thanksgiving, my son broke his arm, and he, it was fine. He, he didn't, like, break it badly. It was just a little – it was just, a, a like, a fracture. And so he had a cast put on, and it was all very sort of exciting, you know, having a cast and getting to go to school with a cast. But in January, we got to have the cast removed, and I just thought it was really funny because we <laughs> – we went there and the doctor was explaining to him about how he needed to keep his arm really still and how he needed Carter to sit there with his arm very still and he was going to use the saw to cut the cast off the arm and Carter shouldn't move and should be very still. And he's like kind of going over and over this. And then the doctor said, and my job is going to be taking this saw and carefully going through this to get the cast off your arm as quickly as possible. So that is my job. And Carter, what's your job? And Carter said, an architect. <laughs> and the doctor said, excuse me? And Carter said, I'm going to be an architect. That's what my job. And the doctor just looked at me and I was like, no, Carter, your job is to hold very, very still. Your job now. And I just thought it was so funny. They're like this total disconnect, like with what's going on in the room and what he's thinking in his head at that moment. Yeah, it's funny. He's a boy on a mission. He knows yeah. what yeah. he wants. 
That's really cute. Well, thank you again, Molly. This has been lots of fun. And can you tell our listeners one more time where the best place to find you online is? Certainly. It is littlegoodall.com. That's L-I-T-T-L-E, like small, and goodall, that's our last name, G-O-O-D-A-L-L. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Molly. Thank you. I'm so excited to do this with you guys. For the show notes, head to brilliantbusinessmoms.com forward slash BBM 136. Have you had a look at the Brilliant Business Moms shop lately? You can find it at brilliantbusinessmoms.com forward slash shop. I hope you're having a great week. Now it's your turn to head out there and be brilliant.